Welcome to the Humor in Games podcast, an analog and video games podcast about how humor is experienced, designed, and analyzed in games. We are Scott DeYoung, Mark Lajeunesse, and Andre Zanescu, and we'll be your guides in this six-episode series. Throughout each episode, we'll break down different theories and forms of humor. We'll draw on interviews with designers, critics, and academics as they discuss the different aspects of humor, their own lived experiences, and how their work utilizes humor in games. On this episode of the podcast, we speak with Jamie McDonald about Nordic LARPs, Type 2 fun, and feminist comedy. Could you just kind of introduce yourself to everyone today? Sure. Uh, my name is Jamie McDonald. I am a, oh, I'm a whole list. Uh, so I live in Helsinki, but I'm originally from Canada. I'm a stand-up comedian. Uh, I'm now a PhD student as well, uh, studying the production of emotions in stand-up comedy, particularly as it relates to minority comedians, that is trans comedians. Uh, so let's see how that goes. And uh, I'm somebody who plays uh, quite a bit in the Nordic LARP scene and has been writing in that scene as well for about 10 years. Well, as a Humor and Games podcast, I have to ask, um, is there a game or a LARP or a game moment in a LARP that you found particularly hilarious? Um, I thought that was such a great question because uh, I, I ended up going through a whole list of all the LARPs that I played. And I know that there are hilarious moments, but I find them really difficult to remember. Uh, I mostly just remember that I had a really good time with a bunch of people um, and that we laughed a lot. I can't remember exactly what the funny bits would have been, but uh, two LARPs might stand out as particularly funny, but not necessarily ha-ha funny, just horrible funny. Uh, and those would be Panopticorp, which was uh, a satirical ad agency. And the second one, which I just played last year, was um, The Future is Straight, um, which is sort of like The Office meets conversion therapy, um, but in a darker way. <laughs> uh, so, sorry, so it's like a, it's a, it sounds like a, quite a dark game. So could, how in, yes. in what ways yeah. was that humorous or funny, um, perhaps? So I'll have, yeah, it definitely needs unpacking. Um, the the LARP was set at a fictional, um, in a fictional environment uh, of a society that was a little bit different from ours, uh, where uh, gender roles and, and, and sexuality uh, were much more policed and much more normatized. And uh, these, it was played by adults playing young people and the camp counselors, as it were, at a uh, conversion camp. And so I was actually playing the director of the camp, uh, which means I got to set, sort of set a lot of the tone. And I ended up bringing a lot of like Marcus Aurelius and reading aloud all this stoicism, uh, which was, it was just the darkest comedy I could possibly think of, like standing in front of a bunch of players who I know are queer. And we're all like, almost everybody who plays this game is queer. Almost everybody who plays this game has heard all of these things said to them at some point in their lives about well, why can't you just you know suck it up and and just be normal kind of thing and what we did was we, we kind of leaned really hard into that and played it so that it was um like parody parody of the of the crappy things 
So how did that, ex- I mean, experience happen for you, but also other players? Like, what was the tone kind of coming out of a game like that? I mean, the, the LARP worked really well, I think, because everybody played it fairly straight. Uh, oh, what a terrible pun. But everybody played it as though they were really in the situation and it really mattered. And actually, during the LARP, most of, uh, most of the people who were playing the staff would just play a couple of scenes then we would go into the staff room. We would kind of yell and cry together because it was so horrible and then go back in and, and keep playing with everybody. But the people who were playing the camp goers, the, the kids who were being you know converted or being told whatever kind of uh, uh, whatever arguments they were being told, um, they when they weren't in front of the camp counselors, they were having a great time, of course, because in the fiction, this was then when most of them as characters had ever met another queer kid. So, I mean, it was an absurd situation that you take all these kids who are supposed to not be queer and they've, they've, most of them have never even met another queer kid. And then you put them all in camp together and expect nothing to happen. So they were having a, a, a great time together when they weren't crying. But this is a Nordic LARP thing. We, um, we have this thing called type two fun. Uh, do you want to kind of expand on that idea of type two fun for people who might not be as familiar with it? Sure. Most people are, would not be. Yako might've mentioned it. Type two fun is when it's not fun, but it's fun. Uh, so you're having a terrible time. You're in the rain. It is cold. Um, you're, uh, your character is miserable. Um, they've just lost everything that they, uh, held dear and the future looks terrible and as a character you're having a, the worst time you can possibly imagine and as a player you're just like yeah <laughs> it's great so just to, to clarify you put someone in a, a situation that across the board is just sounds awful but for a player because you get to kind of engage with it it's it's a wonderfully humorous and, and enjoyable time Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Pretty much. And, uh, you know, and we have, this means that we have in the Nordic LARP scenes, slightly interesting conventions about playing to um, playing to get yourself in more trouble. So there's a less, often there's a less kind of competitive edge with, um, with the LARPs in the Nordic scene. Whereas like many other LARPs have people who would like their characters would like to end up on top. And in a Nordic life, you're more likely to end up with people who go like, how can I get to the bottom in the most interesting way? Because that will collectively allow us to tell a story that is uh, more interesting. And that's sort of a convention. I really like that. And I was wondering if you could speak a little bit more to like the origins of the term as I feel like it's a theme that we're seeing in like online games in terms of like conflicts and bad feelings that kind of come up there. And so do you know more kind of about where that term came up and why it's so prominent within that space? Uh, the actual, like the type two fun as a, yeah. as a term, I believe that was coined by Marcus Montola, uh, uh, Marcus Montola, who is uh, a Finnish, again, uh, uh, game researcher and designer. Uh, and he talked about, um, it was in one of the uh, the the sort of we have a conference every year and produce books and write about various 
topics that we think it's kind of para-academic. It's getting more in academic and also less academic at the same time. Um, but uh, Marcus was the first person to coin the idea of type two fun. However, I think it comes from uh, just a kind of little perfect storm of, uh, of a situation where generally when you have people who live in the Nordics, compared to say Brits or North Americans, uh, Nordic people tend to be more collectivist and uh, tend to be less competitive. And that's just sort of something that's been baked into the societal norms. And so it gets reflected in the way people play. And then at the same time, you had um, a lot of people who had, you know, they had grown up with your uh, orcs in the forest LARPs and magical spells LARPs. And then when, you know, they were hitting their twenties and thirties, they were like, wait a second, like, why don't we do like a LARP where it's, uh, we're having a breakup uh, and it's just two players on a balcony and, uh, and let's play that or let's play when we can play an entirely different economic system uh, or something like that. They, they started to play all of these kind of different ideas. And for a while, it was also quite edgy as in it, we were trying to make games that were um, hard, like the kind of 2000s hardcore vibe you kind of saw everywhere in culture. If you look at like WWF wrestling and stuff like that, it's all, you know, more pain, more intensity. And I think that may have influenced um, where that went in the beginning. But as that started to play more and more, uh, people got a little bit tired of the just being hardcore or suffering for suffering's sake. And then it started to be more emphasis on, okay, how can we do this? But actually make sure we have a good time or how can we do a, uh, a difficult human situation and not be kind of like appropriative and indulgent about it? How can we play it so that it's somehow um, we're trying to connect with something that we can connect with and that let's not lie to ourselves that we can get all this empathy just from playing a game. I think that's really great. I also love the idea of a, a breakup on a balcony game. Um, <laughs> I wonder how that markets, um, but that's an aside more. Uh, but do you kind of incorporate this type two humor in your own work as a comedian? Um, or is your work kind of situated elsewhere within the spectrum of humor? That's a really good question too. I think um, I occasionally break out into uh, a sort of type two humor which I don't know, it's, it's like a, it can be a darkness or it can be that, it can be that amazing moment you sometimes have where you're going along and things are funny and funny and funny and funny. And then you say something just a little bit devastating or just a little bit off and it kind of drops everybody uh, in the room. And if it's something that kind of needed to be said and then it has impact and then the whole room is kind of like, oh, oh, oh then that can be a really nice thing. And I, that's really hard to design for. It has to be, uh, it kind of has to be a, a part of the play of the moment. So is there an element of kind of feeling the audience out and how do you kind of go about doing that to know that you're okay to kind of turn to those moments in, in your practice? 
that just comes from experience a lot of the time. Um, but it's not necessarily, it doesn't, it's not foolproof by any stretch of the imagination. Uh, one of the greatest things about live standup is how frequently actually people fail. Um, and that sounds like something that is like, that's the thing where you go to a standup club and somebody's awful or they're just off tonight and everybody in the room is embarrassed. And for most people, especially non comedians, that's just the worst feeling in the world. And for a comedian, that's kind of a feeling of like, aha, something is actually going on here because there's some real discomfort and this person is going to really try to figure out what did they do to lose the crowd and is there anything that they can do to bring them back? And sometimes like the harder you try, the worse crap you get in. And then sometimes you just kind of try to coast and, and go through it and it works. But when you have like any, any audience, I'm always listening for what did they listen? What did they laugh at at other, in other people's sets? Um, are they, you know, if somebody said something that's about, you know, local politics, did they go for it or did they just kind of, were they lukewarm? Um, if there's something that's just a very silly language pun, did they, did they love it? Did they really like a, a dirty story? Um, and then you start to get the feel of like the crowd. I, I really like that. And I think there's a conversation here to be have around like the element of performance when we're thinking about humor, the ele the element of like scripted humor and kind of the element of interpretive humor, which sounds like you're doing a little bit of all three um, in your practice, but could you maybe speak a little bit more to kind of those pieces? Yeah. Like, so when you have, um, so performing humor from the stage or performing stand-up from the stage, um, different comedians will have, different ways of going about it. Some people have everything written down and rehearsed to the breath, to the moment. They, they know exactly how they're going to say it. And that's, some, that's somebody like, you know, Jimmy Carr, bless his cotton socks, can't think of anybody else, but he's very regimented in that way. Um, then you have somebody like uh, Ortig Notaro, as, as actually, um, she knows what she's going to do. <laughs> And then you have uh, people like um, Mark Marin or Eddie Izzard, who um, they have an idea and they go out talking with the idea. And every single time they go out, the idea gets embellished or something gets forgotten and it just falls away so that the, the set is changing every single time it's being done. And when you make people laugh from the stage, there are... a a bunch of like conventions and a bunch of little rules and tricks that, that tend to work. So you tend to learn what those are and you start to learn how to implement them um, instinctively almost. And then you have this uh, thing where you're kind of reading the audience at any given night and you can change your set if you know that the rest of your set is not going to go well with them. And then there's the kind of personality and temperament thing where maybe you need to be in a little bit of an improvised mode yourself to kind of keep it, um, keep it alive, keep it connected, keep it playful in that way. I'm definitely an improviser and it's not the easiest way to go, <laughs> but I found that it's my, it's, it's how I, it's how I, it's how I roll. I can't go on and say the same thing every, every night. It's, there's always a new joke every night. 
And I'm, I'm just kind of curious because we opened up with that conversation of LARPs and how you meant how you were like, there's no specific moment I find funny, but this overall experience was. And I, I wonder how that discussion you just had around thinking your preparation level for a comedic bit translates into your participation and or creation of a LARP. Um, are there similar themes in, in that regard or is it quite different because you're in this game space? I think the one thing about having done a lot of stand-up um, is that a lot of people prepare a lot more for a LARP. I tend to be the sort of person who I need to make sure my costume's reasonably good. And I need to make sure that all my relations when I go in are not, you know, completely paper thin and I've, I've done some work with them. But what I really, really enjoy is um, having a robust environment, like a social environment that I throw my character into and just see what this character comes up with. I hate pre-planning scenes. Some people like to do this. I don't like to do it. Uh, I hate to know um, where things are going to go exactly. I much, much more enjoy. And I'm, I'm just, I'm very comfortable being in a, because uh, I know that if there's nothing, I will come up with something. I'm, I'm very confident in my ability to come up with stuff. Well, I think I think that shows in, in some of the work that I've seen you do. And I was wondering if you could speak a little bit more to your role as a comedian, because I know that you mentioned that you focus on minority comedians and, and feminist humor in, in a lot of your work. And I wonder if you could just kind of speak to that for our, our general audience a little bit. I ended up starting uh, the Helsinki Feminist Comedy Night and then later a Feminist Comedy Academy because I was lonely. Um, <laughs> uh in, it was 2015 or something, 2014, 2015. Um, and it was actually as a response to um, a challenge that had been given to me by, by a curator in like a performance art context. They were asking like, you're doing standup now. Uh, so can, you know, is, um, is, is feminism funny? And I said, I actually don't know. <laughs> so I thought, well, okay, let's let's try this. Let's make a let's make a feminist comedy night. And the first couple of nights were they were crazy interesting uh, for many reasons. I have never seen an audience and a bunch of comedians more terrified of each other. Everybody was really they didn't know what what is the what's the baseline. What can you laugh at and what can't you? But also, like, what exactly are the values that we're going for here? Uh, is it funny to make fun of this person or that person? Is it funny to make fun of yourself? Is, is any of, like, is being angry funny? Uh, is something that happened that you to you that was awful? Is that funny in some way? Like, people just didn't know. And all we knew was that, you know, feminists are always online and we're always upset. So we couldn't, like, we had, we didn't have an, an imagination of exactly what, like, kind of a feminist comedy club would look like. And so what my favorite thing about that, uh, doing that club, and also we run a, this uh, queer burlesque mm -hmm. comedy and drag and also other performance club mm -hmm. variety show called Punch Up, and learning how to like build an audience's expectations in those and build a kind of culture has been uh, really changing over time. And it's not necessarily for everybody. And we have had 
definitely we've had, and I've had feedback where I, you know, joked about something that was not okay for this or that person or this or that group of people. And then you hear about it and you figure out how to, you know, do better from there or, uh, or to improve your act to avoid misunderstandings from there is another way that it can happen. I think that's like a, a really nice way to put it. And I'm curious how you were able to kind of tease out that baseline. As you mentioned, everyone was so terrified at the start. How did, how did you come about making that happen? I mean, it sounds like part of that was because there was a setting of the scene by calling it a, a feminist comedy night. But how did you kind of deal with that setting into the actual practice of the space? I think um, at first I, I didn't want to limit what anybody said. Um, and I also didn't require that my comedians who I would like ask to be on that show, um, I didn't require that anybody had any particular characteristics and I didn't even require that they were um, a feminist themselves. I just said that, look, it's a feminist comedy night, your audience is feminist and they're paying money. So what I don't want is a situation where you just, somebody just comes on stage and trolls feminists for 10 minutes in a mean-spirited and boring way and then you know thinks that they've done their great bit <laughs> for mankind um i'm more um it was more about like every single uh iteration and every single uh thing that came onto that stage and was set on that stage helped build uh a sort of it helped build that baseline. And also because I was hosting it every time, uh, which now is just a joke in itself because there's a middle-aged white man running a feminist comedy night, you know, and if I point out I'm trans, then, you know, then, then, then they go, is that better? I don't know. Um, but because we had, uh, because we have me hosting every single time and I will talk to the audience about this or that and, and, um, and mostly talk about what's been going on in the city and in the country and in the world. Uh, it does set, uh, people at least know that there's one consistent element, which is me. And I think that helps. Um, I think that helps at least, you know, give a specific show a specific character. But then what I also really like is that now, like the gig that I'm going to be doing this Saturday is another feminist comedy club in Helsinki, which is run by um, three people who uh, were in the Feminist Comedy Academy. And I'm delighted by this because I don't want to be the hegemonic voice of feminist stand-up. Uh, so it's really exciting to see other people and they are running their club in a slightly different way from mine. And that's uh, totally, uh, I'm absolutely game for that. I, I, think, I think that's a, that's something that speaks to the work that you're doing, seeing that others are kind of picking up the mantle and continuing it uh, in their own ways and their own practice as we, as you've discussed and we've discussed that it's quite amorphous and how humor kind of evolves anyways. Um, and I'm curious as we were chatting a little bit before we started recording today. And so perhaps we can kind of talk about that a bit now is how has kind of humor been for you throughout the past two years, as we've seen the setting and the scene of discussion for a lot of jokes and what's funny shift and morph um, and the spaces where we're making that humor, whether it be online or offline have kind of shifted. 
I really miss the live experience. I, I miss it so much. And I think it's so important. This is something that I would really like to be writing about um, in, in my own thesis when it's done in however many years, uh, God willing, in a fast infield. But um, online is so depersonalized um, that it uh, online mostly results in um, the kind of darker play, uh, the, the bullying play which is still play. Uh, it's just, and, and you know, mean humor is still humor. It's just mean. And uh, I think it's much easier to get angry. Like nobody ever loses sleep because somebody said something nice to them. But you can like read one tweet and be awake for the next four hours. Uh, just, you know, trying to somehow resolve that that unsettling feeling in, in your body. But the really like the extraordinary thing about, about laughter and especially about being in a group of people with laughter. And this is like why like writing a comedic book or writing a funny tweet is not the same as writing a joke that will land well in a room full of people. Laughter is like an, it's an involuntary uh, physiological response and it's very social and it communicates many different social things. Uh, not all of them are literally what is meant by the laughter. Sometimes we laugh because we are nervous and we want to show that we're not threatening. Um, and if you also get a group of people and one starts to laugh, it's actually quite difficult for the others not to start laughing. So when you have a room full of people who have paid money, they've come to a comedy club, there's an expectation and even a hope of being you know, entertained in this way. And some people laugh, other people laugh. And there's, there's a really different vibe from being in a room full of people who are vibrating with this response to things that are being said, either in recognition or in estrangement or, um, or out of, you know, a mean-spirited, uh, uh, boundary-breaking, transgressive way. But being in a room full of people where that happens is something I really, really miss. And just to kind of bring this back and as we end, come to the end of our time to, to the question of games and, and humor, how, how does that kind of liveness of, of the joke and the laughter translate to game spaces? I know in LARP, there's talks of like breaking character. Um, and we also have online games that are filled with toxicity, which might be considered dark forms of humor, right? So how does that, that kind of liveness and space kind of translate to these game spaces? I think we could like think about like laughter as a social um as a as a kind of social phenomenon um and it's great when we la we laugh at uh something that is funny but most of the times when we laugh it's not at something that is funny or a joke there are many more reasons to laugh and they're mostly um to communicate meaning when we talk we laugh and we uh, laugh at other people's speech, often just to communicate that we understand each other. Um, so, but that's, that's, that's laughter and that's not necessarily, necessarily humor, but something that I think, um, especially like in, in a minority space, but also in, in a game space is that the shared humor or sharing a joke requires that you share a lot of other things. 
Um, you have to share some values. You have to share an understanding of what is going on. And you have to also agree on uh, the tone of the room. And you have to agree what is going to be, um, I, I don't want to get into the benign violation theory because that's not my favorite theory, um, but we, you have to kind of agree what is a good um, way to break the norm and what is not an acceptable way to break the norm. And if everybody's on the same page, uh, then you can have an awful lot of exploration and play and fun together. And it works very well also in, in games and in LARP. You know, it's the same. If somebody is griefing uh, while everybody else is trying to have a good time, then it's no good. But if everybody's griefing, then that is the good time. I, I think you put it in a really nice way. And we're also kind of at the end of our time. So I want to thank you for kind of making that, that transition point for us. Um, and are there any kind of closing thoughts that you had now that you've been kind of thinking about all of this around kind of humor and games that you really wanted to kind of get out? Because I know that you were thinking about these things before we started chatting. And sometimes the conversation takes us away from those kind of key points we wanted to get to. Um, let's see. I think actually I've managed to talk about most of the things that were really like they were really on my mind. I think most of the, most of the, the the thing that is really interesting to me is the ways in which humor forms community. And humor is also a way like like in the building of the feminist comedy night vibe. Humor is a way of um, negotiating that building of community together. You you try a joke and if it doesn't land, then okay, that's a boundary. We shouldn't go further in that direction. You try another boundary and maybe that one's a good one. So over the course of many of these kinds of jokes and bits of, of humor, you can establish together what is the trust and what is the what's the shape of the community that you have. That was our conversation with Jamie McDonald. Thanks for listening and see you next time on the Humor and Games podcast.